welcome to the March 2023 episode of our Bridging the Gaps podcast series, produced by FASTA, the Foundation for the Economics of Sustainability, and the European Health Futures Forum, the EHFF. I'm Caroline White. And I'm Sean O'Conline. In this month's podcast, David Somek of the EHFF and Caroline White interviewed Laura Rayner, who is a policy analyst at the European Policy Centre in Brussels. Laura is currently working on the Wellbeing Economy Policy Lab, which is a cross-cutting work programme analysing how the EU can develop and implement policies leading to a more equitable, socially inclusive and regenerative economy. The lab's objectives are to help build a political consensus for a well-being economy and to formulate well-being-oriented policy recommendations through multidisciplinary dialogues and analyses. We'll go over to our interview with Laura now. We are very delighted this morning to have Laura Rayner from the European Policy Centre with us to talk generally about the notion of the wellbeing economy and more specifically what their policy group are doing to move this whole notion forward. We've had a couple of podcasts in the past related to the whole area of the wellbeing economy and the notion of changing the way that economic systems are modelled so that they don't depend on a gross domestic product as the measure for the good of society, but in fact measures that are much more realistic and relate to society's needs, like the environment, health, social justice and so forth. And this is something that people have been interested in, but it's quite a heavy lifting to actually produce political change and people to acknowledge that this is something worth doing. We know that there are one or two countries that have been trying to do this, but they're quite small countries like New Zealand or Scotland or Iceland even, but really mainstream. It's even though there's been a lot of interest in Brussels, for example, and the Finnish presidency some years ago really pushed the idea of the well-being economy. In reality, it's very slow. Laura is going to tell us something about how the European Policy Centre is hoping to nudge things along. (laughs) And I look forward very much to hearing from you, Laura. Thank you very much, David. And yes, it's a real pleasure to be here. So um, as David said, I'm uh, working in the European Policy Centre in our Social Europe and Wellbeing Programme. The programme's been working indeed around the wellbeing economy for a number of years now. But as was already mentioned, the work that we're hoping to do in the coming years is really around our wellbeing economy policy lab. Now, the idea of the lab is to create a safe space for politicians to come together, really senior high-level ministers, to come together and actually unpack some of the challenges and opportunities around the wellbeing economy. Because as we see it, there's an awful lot of work, as as you said, going on already in different levels, um, whether that's at local level or in local and regional governments. Um, certainly academics are very busy on developing different frameworks and indicators. However, despite all of this, there still feels to be some pushback at the political level. Now, we can hazard a guess as to what that may be. And indeed, we have hazard, hazarded many guesses as to what might be causing those particular barriers. But what we really want to do is create a base where we can really speak openly with politicians about why they're hesitant on promoting this agenda because the you know the European Union has committed to implementing a well-being economy agenda by 2030 or being on the way to doing that by 2030 and so actually time is really pushing now. We're already three years towards that and, and getting nowhere very fast. 
But what we're wanting to do is unpack why there is hesitation, but also to try and co-create steps that can help politicians move forward with this in their own different different context. Yeah, as, as you said already, there are small countries that have committed to becoming well-being economy governments. For, for instance, yeah, as you said, Scotland, Iceland, um, Finland and Wales in, in Europe and then New Zealand. Also, though, Canada is um, ob- observing what's going on uh, in the well-being economy governments organization and may become a member too. So, OK, al- although there is you know, already you know, a relatively small number who are pursuing this, they're actually providing already experiences and expertise that we hope we can feed in to these politicians from other member states to show them yeah actually not only where where they've met challenges but also where there have been perhaps surprising opportunities for for those member states that have already committed to this so what we're hoping to do is to have um, a couple of meetings this year to try and understand where the debate around well-being economy sits at the moment, considering what's happened over the last few years. How has the pandemic, how has the Russian invasion, cost of living crisis, and now indeed with banking, hopefully not crisis yet, but banking issues um, ongoing, you know, where where does this discussion sit? Have we actually moved away from, from this agenda or actually is it more imperative because of yeah, the ongoing climate and biodiversity crises. Um, so what we're wanting to do is to understand from them how they see it, to get an indication of where it sits in which member states. Also, hope hopefully, this will provide guidance for the European Commission, who will be thinking ahead to their next commission, which will come in next year uh, with the European Parliament elections in the middle of 2024. Hopefully, we'll give the commission an idea of how much support they will have from the member states if they want to try and push this agenda through their next mandate. Um, so what we're wanting to do is to have this safe space to get this information from politicians, but also to see from them what will be useful for them going forward. So for the following years, how can we design meetings which will allow them to maybe focus on one particular element, whether that is, for instance, indicators or or well-being frameworks to guide policy, or whether that is citizen participation, or whether that is economic governance reform. How um, How do we tackle very specific challenges in the context of the well-being economy. Um, so that's the idea for at least the years ahead. The main challenge now is to actually get politicians and enough politicians together to come and, and sit in a sort of a workable group size and to actually be open enough to explain the issues that they have with this agenda rather than the normal political perhaps cover of oh yeah we know all about it we're doing lots of great things in X country but actually to be honest about well okay because of the political dynamics, say, in Germany, with the different political parties and coalition, there's a you know there's issues here, or whether hopefully they will be honest enough in, in this context to say, you know, we're, we're trying to push, there's pushback here, or there's issues with that, or, you know, and then it will allow us to then develop the policy lab further in a way that's helpful to them. Yes, so it's sort of trying to get product champions in a way, isn't it, I suppose? Yeah, I mean, well, I hope that we've already got them. I mean, we 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 call the the Wellbeing Economy Governments Organisation those members already the pioneers. You know, they they are the ones who actually already are those product champions. They're trying, and you know, in different ways succeeding and in different ways failing. But it's it's so important to take that experience because I think you'll probably agree that it's not that we're working on a perfect system now. Um, you know, there are 
failures and successes with the way that we exist now. And I would argue there are far too many failures in the way that we've designed our economy and society as things stand. Um, so yeah, of course, it's always uh, intimidating, especially for politicians who are already thinking of the next election cycles, to take such a brave step. And it is a brave step, because it is, you know, basically admitting that the way that we have been functioning is at least if not counterproductive, it's not helpful in terms of, yeah, as I said, the climate crisis and environmental issues, as well as social inequalities too. They have to admit that we need a new approach. So, I mean, it's not it's not going to be an easy task, but it's one that I think has to happen because at the moment, despite all of the really amazing work that's being done in different places at local level or you know I mean really local organizations as much as local government it's only going to get so far if there's not the political support for it at a at either regional or, or member state level on the political level I just want to bring out something I, I soapbox a lot about which is if you want change that one thing that would persuade politicians is money and that is a, a, you know as a leverage you know, to say there are economic benefits from doing something. I mean, is that a card you can play with this particular? Um... <laughs> oh, wow, it's a, yeah, it's a difficult question. I mean, it's a constant battle at European level in particular. I've been working on, for instance, a social budget tracking methodology in order to try and input some assessment of the social investment aspects of the European budget. It's yeah. so much easier, for right or wrong reasons, it seems to be so much easier to quantify the returns of an investment on a bridge or a road or a building than it is to quantify the returns on better incomes for childcare workers or whatever it might be. Yeah. We're trying to at least put in place some methodologies that you could assess return. Again, the problem is with a lot of these social investments um, and yeah, the, the wellbeing economy is the same. The trajectory is so much longer than mm. is normally the case. And so, yeah, the politicians that are implementing it now will not necessarily be even close to government or even in politics in 20 years' time when you see the returns on that investment. I had a very interesting discussion a couple of weeks ago now with the, the First Minister of Wales, Mark Drakeford, and the EPC about the work that Wales has been doing on the Future Generations Act. Now, one of the key takeaways from that was actually the Labour Party, who have been pushing this agenda in Wales, have benefited from the fact that they have held power in Wales since the start of devolution. And so, and as things stand, will continue to do so unless you know, there's a polit political earthquake. And as a result, politicians that are implementing this agenda will be held responsible for it. And actually, that has... I think really pushed them to take this more long-term approach, to take this well-being economy approach, this future generations approach, because they will be the ones responsible either their or their their party colleagues in future. But of course, uh, especially at European level, when there are elections every couple of months almost in in the different member states, and then of course it's a four or five year election cycle for for the Commission, the Parliament. By the time it's all up and running, it's really in the end four years um, of sort of full speed ahead. It does make it very difficult with this agenda, which is by its nature much more long term in its view. It's a perennial problem, isn't it? Short termism and the nature of politics compared to uh, the kinds of societal changes we all might want or, or willing to work. I mean, I, I'd like to bring in the whole question of 
you're talking about top-down approaches, about bottom-up complementary approaches, but um, both Caroline and I are involved in such a, a project. But Caroline, you must have some questions uh, given your particular knowledge of economic systems. Oh, sure. Thanks, David. I'll, I'll come in. Um, just to, uh, really just a comment. And uh, uh, I'm interested in what you just said about Wales, Laura, because I had the impression, which was maybe naive, but I thought that's the, the fact that they'd appointed a commissioner of future generations. That was kind of a, a, a little bit of an escape route from their short term political pressures and the electoral cycle and so on. Do you, do you have the impression that that is I, was a good move or was a helpful way to try and bypass that or do you have any opinions about it? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, okay, so even leaving aside the fact that the, the, Welsh, gov the Welsh government has been sort of Labour-led or Labour majority for a very long time, uh, also the First Minister was very clear in saying, yes, but in Wales we work as a coalition. And so actually, okay, we will be held responsible most likely, but we still have to work with our partners and so on. Um, but in terms of Future Generations Commissioner, it's a brilliant initiative. And other countries are trying to do similar, I mean, either appointing um, Future Generations Commissioners or something that's sort of similar. In fact, if I remember correctly, in 2021 now, 41% of all written constitutions in the world have constitutionalized future generations, which is massive increase since, um, yeah, you know, even a decade ago has really taken some steam. But I think it's really valuable to have this independent position or, or body that is monitoring this. It just helps, first of all, I suppose, keep it in the minds of the ministers and the, and the departments and so on, that there is someone external watching this, but also um, gives citizens point of contact as well, uh, much in the way of an ombudsman, actually, that there's a, a, a voice that they can go and, and reach out to, whether that's indeed local organisations or, um, or citizens by themselves. No, I, I think it's a, a brilliant uh, initiative and the work that Sophie Howell, the previous Welsh Future Generations Commissioner, has done to promote this agenda has been first class. Unfortunately, she's now at the end of her, her tenure and um, the, the new, new Future Generations Commissioner for Wales has come in. But uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see Sophie pushing the agenda at the UN level, where there is also increasing work being done around building a network for future generations, commissioners at the UN level. So to bring worldwide all of these people who are trying to push this agenda into one forum in order to share experience and, and share best practice of, of what's been going on in, in their different countries across the world. So no, I mean, it's you know credit, credit to Wales who have actually really made great efforts to put their money where their mouth is on this. I mean, their, their roads review, which was, I think, just at the end of February, beginning of March, which was released, which was saying that we're not building any new roads in Wales unless there is a clear safety reason for it. So if they, they will only build a road if there is actually justification in terms of a too high fatality rate or something like that. But otherwise, the investment that would have been put into road building will be put into public transport, safer cycling routes and, and so on, footpaths. Um, I mean, this is a really brave step but one that we, we have to we all have to face the fact that yeah if we want to um, make the changes that we need to in order to live within our planetary boundaries then these are the sorts of things that we have to really prioritize now i reflect that one of the complementary things about that is really to engage future generations now also in some of these ideas it's a no-brainer obviously with the climate issue but problems like the economy is that they're it's not an obvious problem to the man or woman in, in the street. 
So you can't get school kids marching to support the well-being economy, not just yet anyway. And for those of us working at grassroots, uh, I'm sure you know, Caroline and I, uh, from our different organisations, support the Wellbeing Economy Alliance Hub in, in the island of Ireland. And one of the things that challenges us, of course, is getting the message over to citizens. But there's a particular issue about youth as, as well. So there's concerns that, that young people aren't as engaged in politics and political uh, social issues because they have a, a huge cynicism and distrust of the system. So it's really important that uh, I think there's lots of ideas now about how to redress that. But it is an interesting complement to what you're saying, really, about what's being done politically. Do you have a, a view on that? I certainly do. I mean, I think maybe I said to Caroline in a previous conversation, but I, I came into this job and this role you know, many years ago in order to work on European social policy. And within about five minutes of sitting at my desk, being determined that I'm going to you know, change European social policy, it took, yeah, it took 10 minutes for me to realize that in order to actually make any impact on this, I have to work on European economic governance. Now, this is someone who has, I think, like most people, to be honest, run a million miles as fast as I can away from any topic around, yeah, economics, because that's not for me. I don't know anything about it. The terminology doesn't mean anything to me, um, especially at Brussels level, where, you know, we've got more acronyms than you could possibly fill, fill a dictionary with. But in the end, the economy should be there in service of, of us as citizens. And actually, we all have a responsibility to try and understand the way in which it's been structured and the way in which we feel that it should be restructured. I have learned this from scratch over the past, I don't know, five years or so, purely because I was, you know, heading off in one direction and then came up against the wall of of the economy. And certainly, you know, I, I think, as you said about young people and, and distrust and, and cynicism, I mean, unfortunately, it's it's not just uh, just the young who have this sense of distrust and cynicism when it comes to political engagement, political processes, political structures. But, um, you know, even if it starts with the climate crisis or even if it starts with recognizing societal inequalities or yeah, crime or whatever. I mean, in the end, as I view it, and I presume you and Caroline as well, as I view it, a lot of these things are consequences of the system, the economic system, the social system that we have constructed. We have constructed, we have made, maybe us, maybe people who came 100 years before us, but we have constructed a society and an economy in a certain way through the choices that we've made. Or we can deconstruct it through the choices that we make and the yeah the way that we develop certain industries or, or roll back certain industries. But actually, it's supposed to be in service to us. And what I view, I view the current system as failing in that we shouldn't be having such high issues with, with mental health. We shouldn't be having to pour money into flood defenses or you know schemes to mitigate potential climate impacts on you know certain society we should be living in a way which we don't then have to pay to patch up for the consequences of pursuing gdp growth no matter what the consequences are of it so yeah i mean i hope that no matter how you come to this whether it's through perhaps the climate or whether you come through this through the social or whether through the economy because the well-being economy and this sort of approach is being taught now more, much more at university level. There are professors of the well-being economy now appointed, which certainly wasn't the case well, even 10 years ago, let alone any longer than that. So, you know, whether you come to this point 
through these different routes, I think that a lot of people will end up in the same place and looking at what we have and saying, well, no, this just doesn't answer the questions that we're now faced with. It may have answered the questions we had in the 1980s, but it doesn't answer the questions we have in the 2020s. And we need to think of a different way of moving forward now. I think that's a very powerful argument, I must say. Reflections you have, Caroline, listening to Laura, apart from admiring her, <laughs> a strong position. Yeah, definitely that, and very clearly put as well. I have a couple of small comments. One is that I, I'd be very curious when you have your labs and so on. I'd be interested in the relationship between ideas about the well-being economy and what it can, what's needed to achieve it, and the way that the financial system is seen, because that's a real hot potato. I think that's a hard one, and because at the moment, so much of what happens in the financial system really requires economic expansion and growth, and that's why people are so worried about the banking crisis at the moment, for example, um, and so on, or the possible banking crisis. I wouldn't say it's a banking crisis because if you say it, if everybody says it, then it becomes a banking crisis, which is of what's so absurd about the whole thing so uh, yeah i just find that very interesting i find um i mean david and earlier mentioned the relationship of just plain simple money and how important that is and the nature of money and how it comes into the economy and how investments money for investments is found and so on and I, I find that very interesting and kind of probably rather fundamental and so i'd be just yeah i'd be interested to have a feeling for how much this is a conscious awareness on the sort of higher levels or not, because I have the impression sometimes it's a little bit unconscious. There's a sort of, I think a lot of people, a lot of politicians intellectually know that we need to get away from growth. They're aware of that, but there's, there, there is something going on there with the whole need for investment and for not triggering capital flight or whatever. And, and I, I feel like there's something there that could be teased out a bit maybe. And the other thing is uh, something that you said while we were talking at the very beginning before we started the recording, which is just about the, the need to not only talk about frameworks, because frameworks are very important and measurements and so on, as we all agree, but um, the need to also look to look at political will as well it kind of ties in with what i was just saying i suppose yeah i mean certainly from from my perspective as well i'm very very interested to hear actually not even to hear maybe even just to sense from the politicians who take part what the dynamic is when it comes to that economic current economic model and um, how we move away from the why we should move away from it, how we should move away from that less even than what they will say but just in terms of maybe what's left unsaid, I think will tell us an awful lot about actually how close or far away we are from from actually making progress on this. I completely agree. And like I quite often find myself when I'm thinking about these topics and, you know, the, the blockages and the barriers, it for me is also a fundamental issue. And that's why indeed the work that, for instance, that the OECD has been doing around tax, tax evasion, tax havens, because it's going to be a constant refrain i'm quite sure that you know okay we can do this and do that in europe to move away from this but of course or as we're currently seeing with the, the inflation reduction act from the us um and and the impact that that's having with european businesses saying well we want the same support we need the same aid otherwise we're moving we're shifting to the us i mean it's it's i mean it's a real challenge it is a real challenge however i also feel that uh, there's an awful lot of 
benefits to being based in Europe, which we should be a bit stronger in putting forward. There's a reason that there are, there's a lot of people who would happily move to our continent to live and to work here. It's not that we actually are facing a brain drain in that regard, but we, we are not very confident at selling ourselves as actually a really great continent in which to, to live and to work. And actually, I believe that some of the things that you could implement with a well-being economy would make it an even more attractive place to live and to work. And so, yes, you may lose some of these big uh, industry bodies that decide that the tax tax status in wherever is, is more advantageous for them. But I also don't think we should overlook the fact that there may be those who would be actually more likely to set up or at least remain in Europe because of changes to, to the way that the way that we're running our economy in terms of the political will. This is why we're trying to do what we're trying to do, because in the end, I really do feel it will only get so far unless we actually have quite vo verbal, vocal leadership on this from politicians. I wonder what you think about this, but I've also found that if we, for instance, decide that, okay, Ireland has decided that it wants to join Wellbeing Economy Alliance, does that mean that, you know, we have to admit that we're never going to be part of the big boys G20 club, you know, we're stepping back from that. But, you know, that's where all the power really lies is actually in these G8s or G20s or G7s. We're admitting defeat that we're never going to be part of that club. Of course, for politicians uh, and the way that they're perceived and the importance of their country. Yeah, this is a, a really big issue and I understand that. But I think also there's a, a real growing movement of, if you like, well-being diplomacy, where there's also a network being built, a diplomatic network that's being built across the world now. I mean, not just those countries that are currently the well-being economy governments, but there are others across the world, Costa Rica, Ecuador, for instance, who are also pushing different parts of the same agenda. And actually, there is a, a network that's being built there, which also I think could be quite powerful. But yeah, I mean, uh, again, maybe it's just my English upbringing, but this sort of old boys club of the G20s, for instance, I think is unfortunately a really powerful motivator for sort of con continuing down the same path that we're, we're in. And I mean, I, I think hopefully if we got country like, for instance, Germany to commit to this, of course, the US would be ideal. But if we could get a really big global player to commit to this agenda, then that totally changes the dynamic. It suddenly doesn't become a sort of slightly embarrassing hobby we have on the side. It becomes really a central political message that they're trying to pursue. But of course, politicians, even those countries also have to feel confident that they're walking on concrete, that they're not stepping out on a limb here, that they're not going to pay, pay the price of the next uh, election in however many years. Laura, I think uh, all we can say is we have to travel, hopefully, as you say, miracles could happen. But on the other hand, there's also that notion of, it's really the disruptive innovation concept, isn't it? That you have to do something el elsewhere from the centre to disrupt uh, the current model and mm -hmm. show that it works. And mm -hmm. in that sense, small players are really important. But uh, I think the work that the Wheel Island Hub is doing, for example, supported by people like us is complementary to what you're doing and I think it's really important that people working at the top end communicate with people at the bottom end too and support yeah. each other I think it's great I, I, I just have to say I absolutely agree I mean I don't want to give the impression at all that this can only happen from the top down because right. actually with what we're trying to do we're trying to push if you like from the top down but of course any support pushing from the bottom up is going to help because in the end, 
you're the people who are electing these people that we're talking with um, and we're going to be talking to someone completely different if you know you, you're not happy with the work that they're doing so if you're pushing from the bottom that can only help us push from the top but what we're wanting to do is push from the top so that it can also help you from the bottom so no the two have to work completely hand in hand and also should recognize the work that we all the global we all are doing in trying to bring policymakers to get together as well so the civil service level together because there's also a lot of work being done there but if we can join it up so if we've got the local organizations the citizens pushing this agenda asking questions in political hustings party meetings you know trying to push this with their political representatives and if we've got the civil service who are also working on actually bringing this into policy making in a, in a on a day-to-day -day basis but if then we're also pushing with getting the commission to maybe put this front and center of their agenda for the next five years then that's also pushing from the european level and hey if if the un make progress with the network of future generations um, commissioners then again that's another level where it's pushing in the same direction so yeah absolutely i mean <laughs> again coming the whole way in which well-being economy works is exactly how it should be working that we're all trying to push in a similar direction you know bearing in mind different contexts and so on but pushing in the same direction hopefully to yeah a more sustainable way of living thanks very much indeed that was laura rayner from the european policy center speaking about her work on the well-being economy lab with david somek and caroline white many thanks to laura for her participation and as always to leisha kelly for her music on the harp if you enjoyed this podcast, please share the link on social media and keep an eye out for our next podcast, which should go online at the end of April.